Philippians 3, 12 through 21. Not that I have already reached the goal or am already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I have also been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. Join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. For I have often told you, and now say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their goal is, their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. And they are focused on earthly things. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await for a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all, everything to himself. God's word for God's people. Father, uh, we are grateful for this chance to hear from your word. Uh, we're grateful for what you've done in this series as we've gone through uh, all these different issues and topics. We pray that you would be opening our eyes, that reality, the true story that you have been playing out, that that would uh, be unveiled to us one final time this morning. God, we pray that you would give us sharp minds and soft hearts, that you would help us to see what you have for us in this text, that it would lead us to something greater, a greater sense of worship, a greater sense of devotion to you. God, we need you to do all this. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, many of you know, I've said this before, uh, but when I was growing up, my family were like really big baseball fans and they're all from Minnesota. So I'm a huge Minnesota Twins fan. And uh, the last time the Twins won the World Series was 1991 and I was born in 1990. All right. So in 91 for the World Series, I was one year old and uh, I did actually watch the games. There's a picture of me as a little one year old standing in front of a TV. And uh, so I actually watched it, but obviously I don't remember that. I don't know anything about it. And so a few years after that, my parents, uh, because I was growing, I love the twins. They bought me this little uh, VHS. If you guys remember that, these little VHS kind of documentary on the 91 twins. And so we had this and I watched it over and over and over again for like probably years. Uh, and it was like this thorough, I mean, I don't know how long it was. It felt like forever. It was like a play-by-play of their like whole year, the playoffs, the world series that they won. Uh, but what I realized later is that there was this massive difference between me watching the highlights and the replays of these games in 1996 versus the people that actually watched it live in 1991. And the biggest difference there is that when I was watching it years later, I already knew the outcome. Like it, it totally changes how you watch something if you already know the ending. If you know how it's going to end, it completely transforms how you watch it. So I'm watching these highlights and I'm seeing them go through this slump during the season 
and I'm not that worried, right? Or like I see some of their hitters not hitting well and I know, well, they're going to be the heroes at the end of this year. When they go down three games to two in the World Series, I know that they're going to win the last two games or game seven, it goes into the the 10th inning, zero to zero. I know that they're about to win, right? So what that does is it completely takes away most of the anxiety, most of the stress, most of the worry watching these games because I know how it's going to end. But again, compare that with those who are watching it live, right? Or if if you have a favorite team, if you have a game seven or a national championship and you're watching it live, I mean, that's like anxiety inducing. There's like nervous tics that come out and you're pacing and yelling and your heart's beating fast because you don't actually know how it's going to end. The whole experience is vastly different. Knowing the outcome completely can change the experience of the game itself. And as we're wrapping up our series today, I want to kind of pinpoint what I think is a similar truth in our life. Because, you know, for many of us, as we've talked about this over the last few weeks, so many of us struggle with just kind of constantly looking down at the current circumstances in our life, the thing after thing after thing. And what that can oftentimes do is build this pressure, this stress, this anxiety You know, we go through our life and we wonder, like we've talked about, we wonder, man, is the church actually going to make it? Like, is it going to stay pure? Is it going to stay holy? We look at our country and we wonder, how is this ever going to get fixed? We think about ourselves and our physical body and we wonder, am I going to stay healthy for years? How is this situation going to turn out with my family? How will I ever have enough money or the money that I think I need? What's going to happen with my career? Will I ever get that relationship? Will this thing, whatever that might be for you, ever be mine? You know, we can ask these questions and look at these situations and we can tend to walk through life kind of crippled by fear and anxiety. And what we've often said in this series is that that can lead to a couple things. Uh, One, I think that oftentimes leads to distraction for us. Like we're trying to kind of walk with Jesus and live a Christian life, but we get so distracted with all the things that are going on in our life, all the things of the world. And second, what that can do is cause great amounts of discouragement. Like as you see hardship after hardship, challenge after challenge, what can grow in many of us is this discouraging question of, is it ever going to get better? Like, is this ever actually going to be resolved? Is there ever like happiness or bliss on the horizon? But in the kindness of God, he's going to give us one final answer. You know, each week we're trying to give another answer that God's given us within his story And I think this week, what we need to see to help us in this life is that in God's kindness, he actually tells us the end of the story. Like we actually can know the outcome of where this all goes. And like knowing the outcome of a game can radically transform how you watch that game, knowing the end of all things, I believe actually has the power to transform how we live throughout our life. I think it can help prevent a little, bit of dis, a little bit of distraction, a little bit of discouragement, a little bit of stress. And I think today the offer is for some focus, for some perspective, for some purpose and hope in life. Uh, so if you have your Bibles in Philippians chapter three that was just read for us, uh, Paul's gonna speak directly into that point. And he's gonna really call us to live our life, live today, 
in light of the reality of the end. He's gonna call us to look at the end and basically live in light of that. And so that's essentially my emphasis. That's our, the way we're gonna wrap up this series, uh, that we might be a people who actually can press on in life. Like in the midst of all the, the real hard things that happen, that we could press on in this life because we're looking forward to eternal life. That is our goal. If I can put it really shortly, kind of my hope for this morning is that we as a people may press on by looking forward. I think that's what Paul is gonna teach us. So if you got your Bible again, Philippians chapter three, there's kind of two paragraphs you might see in your Bible. Uh, We're just gonna take those one at a time. So the first paragraph, we're gonna look at the idea of uh, pressing on, his call for us to press on. And the second one, the kind of how we do that is his call to look forward. So let's start uh, Philippians three. Let's just read verse 12. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Okay, now to understand verse 12, uh, we really need to try to grasp what is it that he's trying to obtain, right? We're kind of jumping into the middle of a flow of thought here, but he says, look, I'm, I'm trying to obtain this. I'm trying to make it my own. So our question should be, okay, what is the thing? Like, what is it that he's pressing on toward? And I think the answer actually comes in the few verses before that. So again, if you got your Bible, you can kind of look up at verses 10 and 11, because in the passage before, he basically says, I've counted everything in life as worth nothing. Like, I don't, I don't consider anything of this world of any value, but my life is now only about this. Verse 10, that I may know him, Christ, and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So then he goes into verse 12, and I think what he's saying is that his whole life is about this goal. Like this is what his life goal is, that he might know Christ, which he says includes a life of suffering, a life of hardships, and that he might attain or he might reach the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. In other words, the aim or goal of Paul's life is knowing Christ and longing for that resurrection life. That is Paul's goal. Uh, Which made me think a little bit this week, uh, just even in my own life, uh, there's a number of times that, you know, I probably used to at different points, you kind of set these goals for your life, or you kind of have things that are out there that that kind of drive you. You know, I, I remember a few years ago, I read the book, uh, Deep Work. If you haven't read it, it's a great book. And I kind of set these goals and I was gonna transform my productivity, my work schedule, creativity, all these things. I read this book and I was like, okay, this is what I need to start doing. Or recently I read the book, uh, The Intentional Father, uh, which is another phenomenal book. And so I set these goals. This is how I'm gonna love my family and lead my two boys. 
Uh, or actually another one recently, uh, after all my health stuff recently, I, I got uh, all these different medications that I'm on. And so I started learning about all these side effects that will come long-term from these medications. And so I started setting all these goals with exercise and eating healthy and stuff to kind of help prevent all these different side effects. And so I've got all these different things in my life. At different points, you have these different goals. And maybe for you too, you've got certain goals in your life that you're kind of running after. But I want us to consider for a moment, would you be able to say that your primary goal in life is the same as Paul's? Like my primary goal in life is to know Christ and to live for the next life, to live for the resurrection. Like just consider if a friend sat down and they looked at your bank account over the last couple of years and they just scrolled through all the numbers, would they walk away saying, wow, the obvious orientation of this person's life is not anything in this world, they must be hoping for something else. Or think about if someone were to read uh, all the manuscripts of the, the conversations and thoughts you have in your own head or the conversations with other people and somebody literally word for word read it, would they walk out of that saying, man, the most important thing in that person's life is a devotion to Christ and a hope for the next life? Or if somebody chronicled all of your time, like minute by minute over the last handful of weeks, would they walk away with the clear conclusion that your most passionate thing in your life is being dedicated to knowing Christ? Or maybe if somebody watched you go through some challenging moments in life, they saw you hurting and they saw you suffering, would they walk out of that and say, there is some distinct obvious hope in this person because they're not longing for a pain-free, easy life. They seem to be longing for another life. Providence, I think Paul is saying that because Christ has made us his own, because he's saved us and redeemed us, that it should be all of our primary goals in life to know him and to long for eternal life. And I can tell you in my own life, uh, there have been a number of people that you can just see this, right? Like maybe you know some people, you, you see their life and you watch them. And it's, just, it's one of those things where you just like, you can't always put your finger out, you just know it. Like there's just something about this. They have a goal and a dedication to life that just seems different. And there's a couple actually in our church family that I thought of this week, and they're actually gonna hate that I say this about them. But uh, one for me uh, that I've seen over the last handful of years is actually Julie Aaron. Um, man, if you know Julie, her life, she just exudes this like love for Christ and an appreciation for God's goodness in her life. Uh, I've seen her go through hard circumstances and there's just something unique about her. And if you know, like just her life has been dedicated not to consume the things of this world, but to actually live for the next world. And Julie, you've been a great encouragement in my life to live this out in greater ways, even just seeing you. And you know, another couple I thought of this week uh, is actually Dean and Cindy Lindgren. Uh, man, again, if you know them, they're members in our church. They've served in ministry for decades, many of which were overseas. 
Uh, and same thing, they, they have not, you just see it. There's not a pursuit for the American dream and getting the things of this world. There is a radical pursuit for the next life and bringing as many people as they can to that next life. Uh, it's, just, it's just crazy. When you see people like that, it just like builds your faith. And for you two, it's just been an honor to get to see you over the last couple of years. And again, I feel like I can live this out better from knowing you guys. And church, I think this is actually the call for all of us. This isn't just a few varsity Christians. Paul is saying later on in the next couple of verses that any Christian should be living this way, that there's just this pursuit of Christ and this, this focus on the next life that just so deeply marks us that it's so obvious to those around us. This call that we would press on in life, no matter what comes, so that we might know Christ, so that we might not gain the things of this world, but gain eternal life in the next world. In fact, uh, this is where Paul goes in the next couple verses. He's gonna give us kind of some imagery to round out this idea. Uh, Look at verses 13 and 14. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So the imagery here that he's kind of painting is is similar to like a race. All right, so imagine, you know, on a track, you've got sprinters that are running, you know, 100 meters. And as they, they get there, they start and they've got the finish line in their sights. It's straight away and they can see the finish line. And what he's doing is he's using the imagery that a good runner, a good sprinter, doesn't look back. So as he's going, he doesn't look back. He forgets what's behind and he strains, he pushes forward toward the finish line to the goal to get the prize. And again, Paul finishes the next couple of verses will say that he's encouraging Christians, that should be our way of life. That imagery there should mark us. So because of that, I want us just to take a moment and I want us just to, to consider this. I want us to kind of get in this imagery a little bit. So I want you to consider, if you're a Christian in the room, I want you to consider your Christian life like a sprinter on a track, okay? There's a starting point for you. There's a distance that you now have to run, and there's a finish line with a prize waiting. And the goal for every runner in the race is to stay focused, to keep clear, to keep your eyes on the goal, and you strain forward to the end. So I want you to think about, what if... In Olympic sprinters, let's think about the Olympics. Imagine like this, the, the top tier sprinters and athletes in our world. What if they treated that race on the Olympic stage like we often treat our Christian life? Like imagine some of these scenarios. Imagine if there's an Olympian running the 100 meters and he gets off the starting blocks and he runs a few strides and then all of a sudden you notice that he's like looking backwards. And he's still kind of running, but he's mostly looking back. And and in his mind, he's thinking, man, I really should have trained harder before we started. And I really should have gotten better shape. I really should have, you know, not done these certain things before. You know, my start was not quite going well. And my first few strides weren't what I was hoping. And, And he's kind of running forward, but he's mostly focusing on the mistakes in his life in the past. Imagine as the Olympian, she's running and she gets a few strides. And all of a sudden across the complex, she notices the high jump. She thinks, man, I really always wanted to be a high jumper. You know, she's kind of running, but she's like, do I even really want to be a sprinter? Like, should I really be in this race? Or, I mean, look at these athletes around me. They seem to be running the race so much better. 
And she spends the whole race kind of running, but mostly thinking about unlived dreams and comparing herself to other sprinters on the track. Imagine that he begins running and he's taking a few strides, but all of a sudden he sees the shiny lights the cameras, the people smiling. And he's thinking, man, I know that I got to run my race, but I'm really enjoying some of this. I'm enjoying people approving of me. I mean, people think I'm like, he's kind of running, but he's mostly just staring because he's just longing for these people to actually approve of him. Imagine if the leader of the race, she's running and about 50 meters in, halfway there, she starts slowing down because she says, you know what? This is a little bit longer than I thought. This is, I'm getting a little bit tired. I didn't really think it was gonna be this challenging to keep going. I wasn't really prepared for the whole 100 meters. You know, my, my back's getting a little bit tight and she's kind of running, but it's not really as comfortable as she thought the race was gonna be. And so she tends to slow down. Friends, I think often this is how we live our Christian life. You know, we get focused on the mistakes in our past. We dream about what could have been or what other people are doing. We get enamored with the shiny things of the world or approval of others. We get frustrated when this Christian life isn't exactly how we thought it would go. Richard Mellick, who's a commentator, he says about this word that Paul talks about, the idea of straining, and he says it this way. He said, that word, it is particularly graphic bringing to mind straining muscles, clear focus, complete dedication of the runner in his race to the prize. Both mental and physical discipline were necessary. I wonder if any part of our Christian life sounds like that. <laughs> like when you think of your Christian life, does it sound like straining, discipline, devotion to knowing Christ and to living for the life to come? And we can ask ourselves, is, is my life, does it tend to be more caught up with the things of this world or more caught up with the world to come? Am I more focusing on the seen reality, what we've been talking about, or the ultimate reality, the things of God? You know, Jesus says, hey, lose the world so that you can save your soul. And too often, I think in our Christianity, we say, hey, we can gain the world because our soul's probably okay. This is not the way of Jesus. And Paul's urging us here. He's saying, Christian, press on. It is gonna get hard. There are gonna be distractions. There are gonna be challenges. You might get discouraged. And his call is press on. Keep running the race. And the question I think we could ask is, okay, how do we do it? Right? Like, how do we actually stay in our lane, stay focused and keep moving forward how do we not get distracted by our mistakes in our past, the shiny lights around us, the unlived dreams? Paul's gonna say, we press on by looking forward. The way we don't get distracted or discouraged in this life is by seeing the finish line. So skip down to this next section as we see him talk about the call to look forward as Christians. Uh, go to verse 18, we'll read 18 to 21. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. To continue the the race metaphor, Paul is essentially saying here, runner, look at the finish line. Keep your eyes on the goal. To speak to our church family, he's saying, Christian, look at how this all ends. Like consider the end as you're going through your Christian life. If you want motivation to forget what lies behind and to keep going forward, he's saying, look forward. Get your eyes on the end. And maybe you noticed here in these verses, Paul is contrasting the end for those who live for the world and in their sin against those who live in Christ and for him. And so let's just look at, he's gonna say, hey, let's just consider the end of both. Look at verse 19. This is the description of people who are walking in rebellion from Christ, those who live for the world. Look at verse 19. He says, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. Now, as I was studying it this week, I tend to think there's a bit of a backward progression here, if that makes sense. So we can keep the verse up and just notice how at the very end, he says the the issue here, again, as we kept saying all series, that our minds are focused on earthly things, the, the seen reality, the tangible things of the world. And when we do that, it can cause this kind of chain reaction of despair and discouragement and trouble. Because the world, it offers these shiny illusions of happiness, these things that it promises will satisfy. And they're so tempting that they can just get in our minds and we constantly focus on them. We fixate on success in our career, a relationship to satisfy us, more money to make us content, more approval for validation, more control so we can feel free and have security and all these things. We fixate on these things of the world because we think in them we will be happy. Well, if you go up again, he says, when we start prioritizing these things, we begin praising or glorying in our shame, Uh, which means we're taking joy and pride in the things that are wrong according to God. Uh, This is exactly where I think my two-year-old is right now. He simply loves disobedience. Like it's crazy. Like we'll tell him something and he will say no to our face and beam. Like he just smiles. Like Or like sometimes we'll ask him to come here and he will literally turn around and run the other direction laughing. Like he's just like, he's just enjoying disobedience, right? There's a old theologian, Augustine, who said when he was living before Christ, it wasn't just the sinful acts he enjoyed. He just enjoyed sinning. Like the act of rebellion, which is also my two-year-old right now. But this is what Paul's saying. He's saying it's glorying in shame. It's taking pride in doing things that are simply wrong according to God. The things that he says are shameful, we feel like are the good, which again, I think is one of the primary issues in our culture today. It says we should be proud of things that God says is shameful. You know, our culture says we should be proud for destroying gender structures. And it's not a thing that's given to you. It's a thing that you kind of create and whatever you feel now becomes your gender. And God says that he's actually given that to you, that this freedom and pride that we take in this is actually glorying in our shame. A culture that supports and champions the killing of its own citizens in the womb when God says they are image bearers and humans is a culture glorying in its own shame. 
And Paul says this here, that we're doing this because we've removed God from the picture. And he says, our God is now our belly. Okay, which is just a funny way to say this, uh, which I know for some of you, that's probably true. Like your hunger, like that dictates. That's not exactly what he's saying here, but kind of, because he's saying whatever those desires are, like deep in here, like think about inside of you, those impulses, those feelings, those desires, when you're controlled by them, he's saying you've become your own God. When that's what dictates your life, you have removed God and you have become your God. Your feelings have become your God which again, I think is the direct message of our culture today. In fact, it's kind of funny because I think Paul could have wrote this verse in 2022 to specifically put his finger on a summary of our culture, uh, which is crazy to me that it feels like a book 2000 years old is almost relevant today, right? Like it's almost like sin has continued and it's still relevant today because this is exactly what we do. We glory in our shame because we've become our own gods. What we feel is what is true. What we think is the way that everybody should think. Now, the problem in that, when we've become our own God, when we decide right and wrong, when we feel out what's best, when nobody has the right to tell me what to do or how to act, the problem is that's actually treason against the one true God. Which means that the end for those who live this way, he says, is destruction which I think honestly is probably a little bit twofold. One, a society cannot function this way. And I think we're probably seeing traces of it, that there's just this imploding when everyone's their own God and everyone's deciding what's right and wrong, it implodes a society, it cannot function. But I think the other thing is, the Bible is clear that the end for all those individually who continue to live in this type of sin is eternal death and punishment from God. So Paul is saying, look, you can live for the shiny illusions. You can take pride in what is actually wrong. You can be your own God. But he's saying, consider the end of that. Like consider where that goes. Consider what that means when you meet the one true God. Paul's pleading here, look forward. Like consider the end of this life, which I do think is important for us that for anyone who you would say, this actually has been your life to this point that you have lived in this way, that you have functioned as your own God, I want you to consider that there actually is no ultimate hope there. I mean, all that life offers is pressure, anxiety, hardships, and eventually punishment for sin. The good news, if that's you, is that there's a God who stands ready to save sinners. You know, church, we cannot deny and we cannot hide the fact that for all those who remain in their sin, there is a God who will bring punishment for that sin. That is a very real thing that is coming. But we get to joyfully profess until that day that our God first stands ready to save. That there's no amount of worldly living or shameful acts that you could do that bring you too far from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the reality is everyone in this room that is a Christian is a Christian because we lived in sin until the day Jesus saved us from that sin, until we met the God who saves sinners. This is the message of the gospel, hope and salvation in the midst of despair and destruction. Like Christian, you're on the track, you're in the race, not because you got yourself there, but because Christ has made you his own. That's what Paul said, that's the 
grounding of this whole passage that we are on the race because Christ has made us his own. He has paid for our sins and brought us in. And the reality is that can actually be a message for you today. That if you feel like you're living in this camp where you are moving forward and that is your end, before you get there, God is actually ready to save. That you can actually turn to Jesus today and your whole trajectory for your life can change, which is actually where he goes next. If that's you, if you wanna like actually change, profess faith in Jesus and move from that end to something different or for any other Christian in the room, listen to what the end is for believers in Christ. Verse 20, he says, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Notice that whole thing is wrapped up in this citizenship language. Paul's saying, Christian, this is not your ultimate home. We have to believe this. This world is not where we fully belong. Your citizenship is in heaven. Your home is above. We don't live for this day because this is not our ultimate home here today, that we actually have a new home. So why do we strive for the resurrected life? Because that's our home. We strive for it because that's where we actually belong. And in fact, I want you to listen to a portrait of your home. You know, imagine if you were an American citizen who lived overseas for years and years and years, and you kind of have these images that maybe fade of home. Let me just put the picture of home in front of you. This is from Revelation 21. It writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Paul says, Christian, that's your home. Like that is where you belong. We long for that day. We long for the resurrection life, for new bodies and a new home being fully united to God because that is our home. And frankly, who in their right minds wants to live for a world like this when that is on the table? I mean, just honestly, if that is a reality that is so much greater than all of the pain and the tears and the illnesses and the division and inflation and conflicts and wars and everything that marks this world, he's saying he will do away with all of that and that can actually be our home. You know, there was a, a time this last year uh, when I was going through my health issues. And I remember early on last year, um, we didn't really know how things were gonna turn out. There were some conflicts going on uh, in my own family, in our church, the culture, like everything. I just felt the weight of it. And I remember one day I was driving and I feel like I still had somewhat of like, you know, rose colored glasses on just about our world in general. And still a little bit of like, I, just, I still want the world. And I wanna kind of experience the world. And I don't know what happened, but I remember in a moment, it was as if those glasses just shattered. 
Like I just felt the weight of the brokenness in my own life, my own body, the, the people around me. I just felt the brokenness. And like I've never felt before, there was this deep homesickness that came over me. I thought of passages like Revelation 21 and I thought that is where I want to be. Like I long for the day where I get to be with Christ and be in this resurrection life. And here's the thing that we have to be clear on. None of that longing for heaven makes us complacent on earth. It makes us calm on earth. It makes us hope-filled on earth. It makes us joyful on earth. It makes us sacrificial on earth because I'm not looking for a Revelation 21 world here. So I'm not trying to consume the world to fill those desires. I'm here to serve and to give and to love and to live because I've got that coming. Like I'm not looking for that world to be here. I can acknowledge what this world is. I can live as salt and light while I'm longing for the world to come. I don't think longing for heaven makes us complacent on earth. It actually can make us a stabilizing force as Christians in this world. And honestly, if we're not longing for this world to be that, and we've got eternity in our sight, I think that totally transforms how we live today. Like when the end is in sight, I can run a few more years. Like when, the end, when eternity is in sight, I can give a few more dollars. Like when eternity is in sight, like I can sacrifice a little bit more. It's like when, in, in the scope of history, you know, even if you got 60 years left here, you're almost there. Like you're literally almost there for eternity of bliss and joy. And if we're almost home, we don't need anything of this world. We don't need to consume the things of this world. I'm almost home. Like I'm, I got a few more years left and then I'm there. I'm almost home. And in fact, there's this wonderful hymn uh, called Almost Home. So I wanna end with this. I wanna encourage you, we'll have the lyrics on the screen, but I wanna encourage you, you can read them. Or if you just feel like the spirit needs to kind of prompt that in you, a little bit of a desire of feeling like, man, that is my home. I'm almost there, that you can stir up maybe this desire to live, to love, to sacrifice in this world for the next. You can close your eyes. You can just hear these lyrics or you can read them. But I wanna end with this to encourage us. Christians, we're almost there. Like the finish line is in sight. We know the end and we need to live this way. So let me read these lyrics. It says, don't drop a single anchor. We're almost home. Through every toil and danger, We're almost home. How many pilgrim saints have before us gone? No stopping now, we're almost home. That promised land is calling, we're almost home. And not a tear shall fall then, we're almost home. Make ready now your souls for that kingdom come. No turning back, we're almost home. This life is just a vapor, we're almost home. That sun is setting yonder, we're almost home. Take courage, for this darkness shall break to dawn. Oh, lift your eyes, we're almost home. Almost home, we're almost home. So press on toward that blessed shore. Oh, praise the Lord, we're almost home. Father, um, God, we praise you that you have saved, you have redeemed, and that you have built an eternal home for your people. God, I pray that we would see home in our sights, that heaven would be in our eyes, that we would focus and fixate 
on the home that is to come. God, would you use that to transform us as a people, not to be complacent and lethargic in this world, but that we would be the most generous, sacrificial, joyful, calm people, because we know we don't need the things of this world to bring that about. We have that bought for us in the blood of Jesus and we can give, and we can serve, and we can love, and we can sacrifice. God, would you do that in our church? As we're looking at your story here over these last five weeks, would you use this series to build that deep dependence on you in us, that we would see the end, that we would run the race, that we would keep focused, and God, that we would worship you, that we would strive to know you and to reach the end when we get to go home. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father.